0: Let's pray together. Lord, when we consider that it would have been perfectly just for you to leave us in our sin, when we consider that it would have been perfectly just for you to condemn all of us for all eternity, Lord, the gospel becomes even more amazing to us. To think that, that you would give your son to take our sins upon himself, to, to take the wrath and the judgment that we deserve, uh, to die a, a shameful and painful death on a cross. Lord, we are, we are overwhelmed with your love and your grace for us. We pray that our lives would show forth an understanding that we have been given that which we don't deserve and that we have been spared from that which we do deserve. And we pray also, Lord, that as we make our way through the canons of Dort over the next several weeks, that that you would cause that to deepen our trust in you, to deepen our worship of you, to strengthen our love for you, whether we are young or old, whether we've been in the church for a year or 80 years. Whatever the case, Father, we pray that again, learning these things that come straight from your word would be such a helpful reminder to us of the grace and mercy that we have been shown. We pray, Father, that, that you would give us the, the earnestness and the opportunities to take this good news out into this world. We pray that we would tell others about the glorious good news that, that Jesus died for sinners, that Jesus died to, to save us from what we do deserve. Lord, we pray that, that we would simply be called or be faithful to what you've called us to do. We know it's not up to us, nor can we change hearts. We, we know that we cannot make someone become a believer in Christ, but we are simply called to be your ambassadors. So we pray that in our words and, and in our, our lives that we would show forth your grace and your mercy to us. We rejoice with Justin and Nicole in the birth of Beckham this afternoon. We, we thank you, Lord, that Nicole and Beckham are doing well. We thank you for the gift of a, a child for them and a new covenant child in our church. And We pray for Beckham now that, that he would grow up trusting Christ as his Savior. Thank you that you have placed him in a Christian home and pray that uh, he would grow up following you and seeking to live his life for you. We pray that for all of our children tonight, all of our young people, that they would walk with you in faith and obedience, that they would seek to honor you and glorify you in whatever calling you have for them. We pray this evening for your church throughout the world. We, we thank you, Lord, that, that you are continuing to build your church. And we pray that you would bless your church with faithful preachers and elders and deacons, And we pray as well that that your people would be diligent in in using their gifts to serve one another. We pray for those who are persecuted for the sake of Christ. We, We lift them up before you. Lord, while we don't know who they are, you know who they are. You know all of your people intimately. You know what every one of your suffering and persecuted people are enduring right now. And we pray that you would uphold them and strengthen them We pray for their persecutors, Lord, that you would bring them to saving faith. We pray that they would see their sin, that they would see that as they they persecute your people, they are persecuting you. And we pray that they would see their sin and see their need and that they would come to the Lord Jesus in faith. We pray for the seminaries that we support as well as other faithful seminaries throughout the world, that these schools would Continue to be faithful to your word and faithful in training men to preach the gospel. We pray for our missionaries and our missions agencies, Lord. They are doing your work in this world, all throughout the world. We pray that you would keep them from discouragement, that you would continue to bless them and watch over them and encourage them in their work, that the good news of Christ might continue to go out. We also pray for the work of church planting and church revitalization throughout the world that, that you would bless those who serve in those capacities. We lift up our civil leaders before you. We pray for our president and our senators, our governor. We pray for our state and local officials. Lord, we, we know that you have ordained government for our benefit, and, and yet we, we see so often today that, that government in a very real sense seems to have departed from what you call it to be. And so we pray that you would be merciful to us and give to us men and women who love truth and who seek to do that which is honoring to you and will be uh, for the well-being of, of their citizens. As we give tonight to the Ripping Christian General Fund, we continue to pray for the school. We pray for those who work there. We pray for all the students. We pray for the school board. We pray, Lord, that uh, in, a, in a day of a real movement away from objective truth that Rip and Christian would remain faithful in, in proclaiming your truth and, and training children and young people to, from a young age, have a Christ-centered worldview that then when they leave that school and go to college or go to the workforce or wherever they go, Lord, that, that they would be a light for the gospel in this world. We pray for the work of your spirit tonight as we open your word. Help us, Lord, to understand it Help us to see the, the beauty, really, of the, the, the passage that is before us tonight. We thank you for the privilege of worship. We thank you for the privilege of prayer. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We now give to Ripon Christian General Fund, and that offering will now be taken. <laughs> you, Joanne. I'm going to invite all of you to take your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah is uh, pretty easy to find. It's a a long book. It's right after the book of Isaiah. It's pretty much right in the the middle of your Bible. Uh, Jeremiah 29, and we're going to read just one verse, and that's verse 11. I, I mentioned to you this morning that we're going to start a new series tonight. It's going to last for. I don't know, maybe five or six weeks on the most taken out of context Bible verses. And one thing that I do want to say at the very beginning of this series is this. Maybe one of these sermons will focus on one of your favorite verses in all of the Bible. This series is not meant to tell you that you got it all wrong and you can't enjoy your favorite verse anymore. That's uh, not my intention at all. Uh, my intention, though, is to help us to, to understand what a particular verse is talking about so that we can understand even more fully the purpose for which God gave it. And so, again, my intention is not to, to blast those of you who love Jeremiah 29.11 and, and say you got it all wrong. My, my intention is to help us to understand what Jeremiah is saying, what God is saying through Jeremiah. So Jeremiah chapter 29, uh, just verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said uh, some very well-known words. One of those well-known statements is, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. We tend to worry, don't we? We tend to be worriers. We tend to be anxious about the future, some of us more than others. And and that's because typically we don't know the future and we can't control the future. And, and that's typical. We, we worry about and we become anxious about that which we don't know and that which we can't control. There's a reason the most repeated command in the Bible is do not be afraid because we have a tendency to be afraid. We have a tendency to fear. We have a tendency to be anxious and, and that's what's so great about this verse before us tonight. Now, I'm assuming that most of us here tonight are very familiar with this verse. We, we find it in greeting cards. We hear it at graduation ceremonies. We see it on social media. It, it, it shows up all over the place. And, and we might be tempted to think that this is God's promise to me that I am going to be happy all the time and that God is going to give me a prosperous life. But that's really not what this verse is about. It's it's about something far more important than earthly success and prosperity. And the first thing we need to understand tonight about this verse, and this is going to be true all throughout this series, is we need to understand the context. Throughout the years, a lot of verses have been misinterpreted and, and misunderstood and misapplied because the context has been ignored. It's like the story about the guy who was trying to figure out what to do with his life. And he couldn't figure out what he was going to do. And so he thought to himself, I'm going to take my Bible. I'm going to open my Bible. I'm going to point to a verse. And that's what I'm going to do. And so he took his Bible. He opened up his Bible. And he pointed to Matthew chapter 27 verse 5, which says, Judas went away and hanged himself. Well, he thought to himself, "That's not very good. I'm going to try this again." So he opened up his Bible again. He found another verse. He pointed at it. It was Luke 10, verse 37: "Go and do likewise." (laughs) So, 0 for two. He says to himself, "That's not good. I better, I better try this again." So he takes his Bible, randomly opens it up, points to John 13:27. What you do, do quickly. (laughs) The point is, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say when you start ripping verses out of their context. And and so we first need to consider the context of Jeremiah 29.11. And a lot of this context is going to sound similar to what you heard from me this morning because there's some overlap between Jeremiah and Haggai. Jeremiah was a prophet, you know that. He was a prophet in the 6th and 7th centuries BC. So in the, in the 500s and 600s, he was a prophet. He started his ministry around 627 BC. So he was about 100 years before Haggai. His ministry lasted for about 50 years. Jeremiah is, you may know this, known as the weeping prophet. Because he had a hard ministry. Jeremiah's calling was to essentially call Israel to repentance. To call Israel to, to repent of their idolatry, to repent of their rebellion, and to turn back to the one true God. And, and in Jeremiah's message, there was a warning that if you do not do that, people of God, there will be judgment. There will be consequences. And, and you know, perhaps, the story that, that Israel didn't listen and judgment came, as, as we saw this morning from Haggai chapter 1. God used the Babylonians to, to chastise his people for their continued unrepentant sin. Basically, they, they came into to Jerusalem in 586 B.C., and you know the story. They destroyed the city, they leveled the walls, they destroyed the temple, and, and they took God's people to captivity. Now, not all of them were carried off to Babylon. Some of them, some of God's people actually stayed behind in Jerusalem. And, and so you can kind of picture in your mind what was going on. About a, about a thousand miles or so from Jerusalem, many, many Jews were now living in, in Babylon. Their home city had been virtually destroyed, decimated. Their, their place of worship, their temple, their church was no more. And, and they were living in a land of idolatry and a land of paganism. Now during this time, some of God's people were still living in Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was a a a mess. It was rubble. And so, whichever group you were in, if you were, if you were part of the, the Babylonian captivity, you were a thousand miles away from Jerusalem, or if you were still in Jerusalem, you're probably asking the same questions. What happened? What's going on? Is, is our situation ever going to get any better? Where is God in all of this? Is this just our lot in life from now on that we're stuck in Babylon for the rest of our days? This this passage, this verse is, is written to answer these questions. Now in the, in the midst of all this turmoil, one of the things that God's people had to deal with and, and to discern... Were that there were different people telling them different things. In other words, you had had men who were claiming to be prophets. You had men claiming to speak for God. And they were were promising the Israelites, look, this is all going to be over soon. It's all going to get better very, very soon. And, And by the way, this is something that the church has always had to deal with. All throughout the Bible, all throughout church history, there, there are people who claim to speak for God, but who in reality do not speak for God. And that was the case in Jeremiah's day. You, you had these prophets who were saying to God's people, it's all going to be over soon. Don't, don't worry, not much longer. In fact, if you have your Bible still open, look back to chapter 28 and, and notice verse 1. Jeremiah 28 verse 1. In that same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people. And here's what he said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Hananiah says, I'm God's prophet. And and I'm here to tell you that in two years, all of this is going to be over. Two years and the exiles will return. Two years and Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Two years and Nebuchadnezzar's wicked rule will be over. But that wasn't true. This this guy, this prophet, was just telling people what they wanted to hear. The, The reality was that there were many, many years still to go. It would be a long time, not till, as we saw this morning, 539 B.C., that Israel was allowed to go back to Jerusalem. And so God doesn't want his people to to get this false sense that their time in Babylon is going to be over soon. Many of them, again, are in Babylon. Many of them are still in Jerusalem. But but everything is just horrific for them. And God wants them to know the truth. And, And that's why now if you look at chapter 29, verse 4, this is more the context. Chapter 29, verse 4 For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. That sure doesn't sound like the exile is going to be over in two years, does it? God says to his people in Babylon, I want you to build a house. I want you to live in that house. I want you to plant a garden. I want you to eat what it produces. I want you to get married. I want you to have children. I want you to marry off your children. I want you to have grandchildren. And I want you to serve in your community. And, and oh, by the way, don't listen to those false prophets who are telling you in two years it's all going to be over. No, I think this is pretty helpful for us tonight. We live in a world, we live in a culture, and, and you know this to be true. This, this doesn't feel like home. If we are Christians, we, we frequently feel out of place to, to live in a Christian in this culture and to, to think as a Christian in this culture it is to very much feel like an outsider. You ever been somewhere before and just feel out of place? Maybe you go to a party or an event of some kind and you just you don't feel comfortable. You just you feel out of place. You feel like you don't belong. That's how we feel as Christians. I I feel like I don't belong here. And we say to ourselves, you know, the the things that this culture gets so excited about and the things that our culture gets so wrapped up in and and just obsesses over, those things don't, don't move my needle, we say. They don't, they don't excite me. And yet, this is where God has us, right? This is where he's placed us. Children, you know something? The Bible tells us something very interesting. It tells us that, that God has determined when we would live and God has determined where we would live. He's determined our when and our where. And so as we live in this this. hostile culture at times and we might say to ourselves we might complain and we might say I hate living here I hate this place I wish I lived somewhere else there's a sense in which we're saying God you don't know what you're doing when you put me here you, you didn't really know what you were doing still other people will say I hate the 21st century you know I wish I lived in the the 16th century. thats we, All of us reform people. We wish we lived in the 16th century. My guess though is that if we're complaining now in the 21st century, we'd probably be complaining in the 16th century. This is where God has placed us. This is when God has placed us. And I think that, that God is saying something very similar to us today that he was saying to his people in Isaiah's day or in Jeremiah's day. Find a place to live. Find a hobby or two. Get married if that's the Lord's will. Have children. Have grandchildren. And and, and wherever you are, and I gotta name all the towns now, Ripon, Stockton, Modesto, Mantica, Oakdale, Fergeri, Farmington. Wherever you are, God is saying, carry out your calling for the betterment of your community. Don't sit there complaining about where you live. Don't sit there complaining about when you live. Don't complain about your lot in life. The the grass always looks greener on the other side. And and don't think you have to be a pastor or a missionary or a Christian school teacher to serve God. Use use the gifts God has given you to, to glorify God, to serve others, to better the community in which you live. And and then in verse 8 we're getting closer to verse 11. Verse 8, God tells his people the truth about their situation. Notice what it says in verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them declares the Lord. Don't don't listen to these guys who say that it's going to be over in 2 years. Don't listen to the herald campings of the world who predict dates. Don't listen to them. They don't speak for me, God says. And, and we know they don't speak for God in this book because our God doesn't contradict himself, does he? God doesn't say one thing in one chapter and another thing in another chapter. He does not contradict himself. And so he doesn't say one thing and, and, and say it's going to be over in two years and then he turns around and says no, that's not true. Again, turn back, and this is part of the context again, back to chapter 25. And take a look at verse 8. Chapter 25, verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. In other words, because of your disobedience, Israel, judgment is coming. Drop down to verse 11. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. You see it? God says, it's going to last 70 years. Not, not two years, not the, what the false prophet's telling you. And so when these false prophets come along and say, hey, two years and this is all going to be over, That's not from God. God doesn't contradict himself. And God reiterates it here, it's going to be 70 years. Now, that's not something that people would have wanted to hear. I wouldn't want to hear that. Babylonian captivity was a a very difficult time for God's people. But these were the consequences of their sin, the consequences of their rebellion. God wanted his people to turn from their sin. He he wanted them to turn from their idolatry. He wanted them to put their trust in him alone, to follow him alone. God was using this exile. He was using this horrible time in their history to wake his people up. And the reality is that sometimes that's what God does. Sometimes God sends hard providences into our lives. He doesn't do it because he hates us. He does it because he loves us. He does it because he wants us to see our sin. He he does it because he wants to shake us out of our complacency. He does it so that we might look to him and and might trust him. But, But Christian, he always does it for his children in love. Hebrews 12, verse 6 says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. All of that to say that's the background to this one verse. Jerusalem's been destroyed. God's people have been carried off to Babylon. They're going to be there for 70 years. And if you were living in that time, and if I were living in that time, we would be saying to ourselves, what is going on here? Has God given up on us? Has God cast us aside forever? And that brings us to this verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and to give you a hope. This is a lot more than a verse for someone's graduation. This is a very, very precious verse. And I want you to notice four words in this verse that make it, at least to me, make it come alive. First of all, God says, I know. I don't know the future, but God does. You don't know the future, but God does. That should be very comforting to us. The the God of the universe, the, the God who created everything by his spoken word. The God who is the king of kings. The only true God. He knows. In fact, there's a there's an interesting emphasis at the beginning of this verse. Literally, if you look at verse 11, literally in the original language, the word I is repeated. Literally it says I I know. It's like it's like God wants to drive home something to you tonight. He wants to drive home the point that that he is the one who knows. Our God knows. The one who loves us, the one who sent his son for us, he knows. Our lives are in his hands. He knows the plans that he has for us. That's a beautiful word, No, know. God knows. Secondly, notice the word you. Now here's where we get into a little bit of trouble with this Verse. In verse 11, God says, I know the plans I have for you. And we get into trouble when we think that, that all this verse is talking about is us individually. We think it's about just me. But, but the word you there is not, not referring to individuals. The, the word you there is referring to God's people as a whole. In other words, God knows all about his church He knows all about his covenant people and and he will never abandon his church. God is saying to his people in Jeremiah's day, look, church, I know what you're going through. I know how difficult it is. I know your pain. I know your struggles. but, But trust me, I know and I have a plan for you. I have a plan for my people. I will rescue you and I will bring you back from exile." And so as one author helpfully says, he says, before thinking about what this verse means for us, personally, individually, think about what this promise means for us collectively or corporately. What does this promise mean for us tonight? Well, I want you to think about God's greatest plan, God's most precious plan, his plan of salvation. Children, you might know that that God's plan of salvation starts all the way back in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Adam sins and and God says, I'm going to send a Savior to deliver you. But when you think about it, God's plan of salvation actually goes further back than that. If if you want your mind to, to be blown, if you want your mind to be filled with something that you just can't fathom or compute. Think about the fact that the Bible says that before the foundation of the world, in eternity past, God set his love on us and chose to save us in Christ. I I can't fathom that. Before this existed, before this world existed, in eternity past, God set his love upon his people and chose to save us. And the Bible then says that when the the time was right, when the fullness of time had come, Paul says, Galatians 4, when the time was just right, God sent his son to redeem us and and he sent his spirit to, to apply the work of Christ's redemption to us. And all of this was part of God's great plan of salvation for his church. You might be familiar with what is often called the golden chain of salvation. We could also call it the golden plan of salvation. It's found in Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. Paul says, "...for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers." Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That was God's plan. God, Paul says, foreknew us. In other words, he set his love on us before time began. He predestined us He chose to save us in Christ. He he called us through his word and spirit. He justified us. And one day, Paul says, he will glorify us. In fact, Christian, your future glorification is so certain that Paul can speak in the past tense as if it's already happened. Glorified, he says. That's God's amazing plan of salvation. Now, now, yes, God has a plan for each one of us individually. And, and, and God knows each one of us individually. He loves each one of us individually. But, but first and foremost, when we read Jeremiah 29, 11, we need to be reminded of God's plan for the church. You, you can't read this verse without thinking what God has done to save his people. Third word I want to draw your attention to is the word Welfare. The translators of the ESV didn't ask me about this, um, but I don't think this is their best translation. The the Hebrew word is the word shalom. It means peace. In fact, if you have a King James or a New King James, that's how it translates. I think that's a better translation. God says to his people, "My, my plans for you, my people, are plans for peace. And you go, what kind of peace is that talking about? You see bumper stickers that say, visualize world peace. And people always talking about we need peace in this world. Well, in the immediate context, the, the peace that's being referred to here is, is coming home from exile in Babylon, coming home to Jerusalem. But there's an ultimate meaning to this word peace. In, in the ultimate sense, it's, it's talking about having peace with God. You, you, you see, by nature, we, we were the enemies of God. But but through faith in Jesus, we we have peace with God. Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Brothers and sisters, there's no greater peace than that, is there? You, you You can go home tonight and you can lay down on your bed and put your head on your pillow at whatever time you go to bed. And you can say to yourself, I am at peace with God. And there's nothing that's going to change that, Christian. You have everlasting peace with God. One of the greatest, I think, illustrations in the Bible of that, of having peace with God, is the veil of the temple. Children, you, you might remember that, that in the temple there was this big, giant curtain. And, and this big, giant curtain separated the the holy place from the most holy place. And and that that curtain symbolized that that sinful man could not come into the presence of the holy God. But but when Jesus died, children, what happened to that curtain? It was torn in two from top to bottom. No no longer is there this barrier. No longer is there this, this... hindrance, no longer is there enmity between us and God. Now there is peace. Do you have peace with God? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you come to him for for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life? If not, you, you do not have peace with God. But if you are trusting Christ, the Bible says that you have peace with God. When you see that word welfare in verse 11, remember what Jesus did for you so that you would have peace with him. One more word. It's the word hope. You put all this stuff together and, and you say, because God knows me, because God knows us, because God has a plan, plan for us, because Jesus died for us and, and gave us peace, we have a living certain hope. That's the kind of hope we have. You wake up tomorrow and you say, I hope I have a good week. You're saying, I don't know if I'm going to have a good week, but I kind of hope it is. I hope the weather's good. But you don't know if it's going to be good. That's not the kind of hope we have. We have a sure, certain hope. We, we very much feel like exiles in this world Ultimately, this world isn't our home, but we have a great hope. We have the hope of a better life. We have the hope of eternal life. We have the hope of our forever home. This is a wonderful verse. People should put it on social media. People should talk about it at graduation ceremonies. It should be in greeting cards. When we understand the context, when we understand what it's really saying, it's saying a whole lot more than, you know, God's going to get you through your final exams and get you on to your next thing. This is God's promise to his church. The the world may fight and, and rage against the church. Satan may do everything in his power to extinguish the church but that will never happen. And then we can move on from seeing how this verse applies to us as a whole, as the church, and we can see how it applies to each one of us. And we can say to ourselves, yes, this is God's promise for his church, but I'm part of the church and this is his promise for me tonight. He's not going to forget about you. He's not going to let you go. In Jesus, you are his dearly loved child. And one day you're going to be with him forever. He knows you. He knows the plans he has for you. Most importantly, the great plan of salvation. And he's never going to let you go. He's never going to give you up. You will belong to him forever. Let's bow in prayer. Father we thank you for your word we thank you for how it applies to us in in all eras in all places we thank you for the precious promise you give to us to your church tonight and we thank you that you know us and that you will always be with us help us to rejoice tonight as we go home and go into a new week to know that we have peace with you And to know that we have a certain, sure, living hope because of Jesus. And we pray this in his name.